In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria, and all went to the, be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to, Jude to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, there came, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that was been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for who you are and all that you've done. Lord, you have lavished upon us your grace and mercy, and you're giving us your promises of a deliverer, Lord, to deliver us from the sin and the corruption and the decay and our enemies of sin and death that we have brought upon ourselves because we have not loved the God of pure love and eternal joy and in lasting peace but we have loved ourselves, and the very thing that we have sought after has destroyed us. And Father, we thank you that in an anonymous city, you came to a young woman who was unknown, and you gave the greatest promise that he who is mighty has done a great thing. Holy is his name. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Christ that you have not left us to struggle and grope in the darkness of sin and death, but you have shined the light of the world and you have led us out of our destruction, out of the bonds of sin and death, and you are leading us to the promised land where we will be with God and his people for all eternity. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. We will be able to fully love the Lord with all our heart and soul, our mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves. We'll have glorified bodies to be able to do your will and to honor you and to have a dominion over the new heavens and new earth as it was and as it will be. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray, amen.
you're not already there, if you go to Luke chapter 2, it's the third, um, third book in the New Testament. Uh, I don't have the page number. It is, I believe it's in the, uh, the bulletin, but if you uh, don't have a, tr- a, a pew in a uh, pew Bible, you can go in the, the front in the glossary and it will tell you the third book of the New Testament. You can find that page number. It's the second chapter of Luke. She took the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Two dozen words that change the trajectory of creation. No longer would men and women be able to enjoy the full goodness of God and His creation. In an instant, when rather than loving the Lord with all their heart and soul and mind, they turn their love inward, guilt and separation and self-love prevented all of creation from enjoying the full goodness and living at peace with one another. Greed and jealousy and pride has poisoned relationship and prevented peace with man and peace with God. Though creation is not as bad as it could be, we know that things are not the way they should be yet. Because we know that the goodness of creation, when God in Genesis 1:27 looked and stepped back at the works of his hand, the beauty and the majesty of his creation, and he saw it, he said, it is very good. The sweetness and the joy and the glory and the majesty had now had the poison of sin and death introduced and death and decay went and have touched every corner. Pain and toil, discord and uh, decay, perversion and death. God's very good creation was polluted by sin. But in the midst of the toil, of the decay and death, God has made a promise. God has made a promise that he is making all things new. Things are not as they should be yet. Robert, my pastoral mentor, I remember said, told me this, and I've thought about it, the, the profound nature of this, the, um, the truth of sin and the truth of the gospel. He said, there is not a joy in this world that is not stained by sin. Uh, sin has put its fingers and touched everything, yet the promise of the gospel that there is not a darkness that does not have a ray of hope. In the moments of grief, in the moments of pain, and when we have no words but we can only sigh because the reality of a, living in a sinful world causes us to uh, be at a loss for words, the promises of God pierce the darkness. The promises of God that even as the curse of sin was crushing down the weight on on the shoulders of Adam and Eve, the promise of God pierced the darkness when he's promised a snake crusher, a descendant, the offspring of the woman would be a champion who would come and destroy this death and pain that that was corrupting uh, God's creation. That a nation blesser from Abraham's offspring would come one who would allow the blessings and the goodness of God to flow to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, and every people. 
And that ultimately there would be an eternal king. A descendant of David would sit on David's throne who would rule with truth and beauty and righteousness. No longer would there be corruption and perversion and, and, and uh, obstruction, but there would be truth and beauty and love would reign from David's throne. These were three promises that we have looked at over the last three weeks, but they are among hundreds of promises of what God was doing, that a long-awaited Savior is coming, a Savior that was born to set his people free, a Savior to release his people from their sin, a Savior who would deliver them from oppression, a Savior that would untangle sin's broken, complicated, tangled web. The Lord of all creation, the one that we saw in Sunday school in the beginning of Hebrews, who is magnified and exalted, who holds all things together, is coming. And we rejoice. And for the people of God for generations anticipated that coming. But he didn't come like anybody thought he was coming. It was nobody expected him to come the way he did. There was no pomp in circumstance. Uh, stance at his birth. It was, not, it was not anticipated or recognized by most. It was empty of worldly honor and power and privilege. And the reality when we read the words of Luke, it was painfully ordinary. But in the midst of the ordinary, the ex extraordinary promises of God were accomplished in the midst of of the ordinary. The extraordinary promises of God were accomplished in the midst of the ordinary. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, that uh, Spencer read for us this morning, I broke it up in two. It was an ordinary birth and a profound significance. An ordinary birth and a profound significance. As we begin in verses 1 through 7, we see the ordinary birth of Jesus, though over the generations there has been a lot of residue that has been put on the birth of Jesus through um, songs that are simply not accurate. They are from the imagination of uh, good, well-meaning uh, artists who have sang those uh, teachings uh, that have built up that residue. And as the Sistine Chapel some 15 years ago was cleaned of all the residue from the, uh, from the uh, various uh, worship and the, and the um, they swing it, Incense, thank you. Um, from the incense that had built up on the, on the Sistine Chapel, they cleared it away and they saw colors and beauty they had never seen before because over years that uh, it has accumulated. And I think uh, Jesus' birth over the generations has been exaggerated and supplemented and embellished. Uh, I've said this before. I said uh, we think of one of the songs that is often sing, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord, Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. As you sing that, you think about it. If you, when you step back and, and think about those words, apparently Jesus was a child who never cried. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he probably, the way the author said, he was this angelic little child. Uh, and they, as the pictures often see, we see a glowing uh, radiance from heaven and he never cried and he was peaceful and he cooed all the time. 
but the reality was that was just not the case. Jesus was a, a child that cried. Alistair Begg, a pastor in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, said the significance of the baby was not the appearance of the child, as artists will um, render, or the exceptional temperament, but his significance given concerning this child. There are some incredible elements of the story of Jesus. Um, the narrative that you see angels singing and Gabriel coming to Mary and the angel of the Lord coming to Zechariah to announce the forerunner of Christ. We think of things like that, but then we realize how ordinary the birth of Jesus was. Now notice Luke 2, verse 1. In the days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or counted. A census was taken. This is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered east uh, to his own town. You have to understand the days that Jesus was born in. It was in a time called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, was known as Octavian. He was the, the great nephew that was adopted by Julius Caesar. He became the, the ruler after Caesar's death that was divided into three portions of the kingdom. Over time, Octavian was able to defeat the other two rulers. He came under and took control with his iron reign. And during that time, those 40 plus years, it was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but it was achieved not by kindness, but it was achieved by quelling any rival upstarts. And under the, the nose of Octavian, the, the, the exalted one, or Augustus, the prince of peace was born in the midst of the peace of Rome. And not a single Roman official knew it. And in chapter, verse 4, and it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Mary and Joseph lived, uh, left their home in the really backwoods region of Galilee. It was part of country. Uh, if you would think about country Israelites, that was that. And it was north, uh, the northwest part of Israel, and they traveled down to Bethlehem, the city of Joseph's origins, where his family was. Uh, some of you have family that's from out of town, and they're coming in, and they would have gone and got together, and sometimes it can be cramped, and sometimes it can be a little tight, and sometimes um, tempers can flare and misunderstandings, and this is the very thing that Joseph was. Everybody was traveling for the census. They came down, and things were not as ordinary or as exceptional and peaceful and calm. The hustle and bustle of we have to get down to, to Bethlehem to be registered, uh, and we don't even know how Joseph got there. We think of the crest of a hill with a shining Jerusalem with Mary with a nice healthy glow of pregnancy riding on a donkey, but it doesn't tell us how. Whether it was to be a donkey, whether it was they walked, or whether they took, uh, were in a box with a fox, we don't know how Joseph and Mary got to Bethlehem. All we know is they got there. They did what it take to get there. We don't even know the time of year that Christ was born. It probably wasn't December. Uh, historians say it was likely that it was September when Christ was born. That's a whole other story. Why do we celebrate in December? 
but uh, you should have been at VBS a few years ago when we talked about that. Uh, I'll answer those questions later. All we know is that Mary and Joseph did what it took to get to Bethlehem because Joseph was a descendant of David to be registered by the government uh, who probably was overstretching their uh, authority and Joseph knew that anybody who didn't want trouble needed to get to Bethlehem. It's what ordinary citizens do when the emperor decreed them to do so. In verse 5, you see the purpose to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. When Joseph arrives in Bethlehem, Mary is with him and she's pregnant. There are no details about their arrival but one. There was no place for them in the inn. Another, this is where, over time, the stories of Jesus have been embellished. We uh, have a picture in our mind going into a first century Motel 6, asking, do you have any vacancies? They don't have a spot, and they're like, well, you can go into the parking lot where we park all the animals in that little cave, and you can, you can be there. Most likely, the, it, when it says an inn, it was actually a, a room, a guest room. It's the same word uh, at that where the disciples had uh, an, the upper room where the, the Last Supper took place. That's the same Greek word as that there was no room in the inn. And so probably the older citizens of the house, the more mature of the family members, got the guest room. And Mary and Joseph, as the younger people, had to figure things out in the uh, area that was covered uh, in, the, in the house where in cold nights the animals would have been brought in. Uh, and it was there Mary and Joseph did whatever they possibly could to make Mary comfortable as she was great with child. And it was there where she gave birth to this child. They received no special treatment, no plush accommodations. Mary and Joseph were ordinary people trying to find a warm and dry place where they could spend their nights while they were in Bethlehem. Verse 6, we continue, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. This little verse, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, is the only description of the birth of Jesus. There's no great elaboration, as we have seen in storytellers that have come and gone in song and word uh, in plays, uh, there is the, a brief description. The narrative doesn't give us a detail how long they had been in, in Bethlehem. It could have been days, it could have been weeks, it could have been months. We simply don't know. We only know that while they were there, Mary went into labor and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And like any good mother who wanted what was best for her son, she was attentive and she was affectionate. It, uh, Luke tells us she wrapped uh, Jesus with strips of linen to keep him warm and t content. She did, uh, as a uh, poor woman, she did whatever she could to keep her baby warm and safe and content. A loving mother she was. And then it says, Joseph found a place for Jesus to sleep. Couldn't go out to Babies R Us. They were probably closed on Christmas Eve night. So he, that's a joke. Um, um, but he found a place. He did the best that he could. He found a, a dry place and he laid his son, his adopted son, into the manger where normally animals would eat. 
They were ordinary people living on ordinary means in ordinary, living ordinary times, trying to make the best of a tough situation. Their story, though exceptional to us in the 21st century, is not unlike all the other travelers at the time. Uh, of Bethlehem. People were hustling, uh, uh, going all around. Jesus probably wasn't the only child that was born in Bethlehem at that time. They were all dealing with extraordinary, exceptional things. Ordinary people trying to make it in in the world. The officials kept counting, travelers kept arriving, and the inhabitants of Bethlehem were their normal routine like every day before. No one even noticed that the Prince of Peace was born because it was so terribly ordinary. The extraordinary promises of God were accomplished in the midst of the ordinary. But you realize these two ordinary people from the backwoods part of Israel, God was working and guiding and moving all of the empire to get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. God in his righteous, sovereign hand, stirred the heart of the empire. The most powerful ruler in all of the world, the Lord stirred his hand because he holds the hearts of kings in his hands and he moves them as he pleases. He stirred the heart of the Caesar Augustus to move Mary and Joseph to where he wanted because God is sovereign over the great kings and congresses and rulers and authority and he's sovereign over two ordinary anonymous lives and the outskirts of Nazareth. Because God was working his promises and nobody knew what was happening. His purposes that he had promised before in Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, this is not where they were expecting the king to come from. But you shall come forth, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient times. God redirected a a powerful superpower to get two little people to where he said his king, the prince of peace, would be born. And nobody had a clue until the extraordinary happened, until the angels sang. The angel sang about an ordinary birth that had a profound significance. Notice verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. You can see that as the director, Luke, moves his camera from this anonymous man and woman, they're walking and they're coming to Jerusalem and they're settling and they're overcoming obstacles and doing the best what they could. All of a sudden, the camera, from this zoom in on this young man and young woman, the camera begins to pan out into a wide panorama into the deep darkness of the night and you can see these ordinary haggard dirty uh, shepherds out in the fields in the darkness of Bethlehem the very fields where David played his harp the very fields where uh, that David tended his sheep 
the significance of this child who nobody knew was about to be announced. The overflow of the praise of heaven was about to enter the stratosphere and make known the significance of this child that was to be the fulfillment of the promises of the snake crusher and the nation blesser and the eternal king of David. Notice verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, just as an angel delivered from the divine message to Mary in Zechariah, he now appeared to the shepherds. Then the glory of the Lord shone around them. The pitch black darkness of night in Bethlehem was, a pier, uh, was pierced by the inapproachable Shekinah glory of the Lord. God's majestic presence filled the sky. The same glory that led Israel by fire by day and a cloud by night. The same glory that thundered in lightning and thunder above Mount Sinai as God gave his law to Moses. The same glory that filled and overwhelmed the priests as Solomon prayed in his temple. This glory had returned to Israel. The very glory that Ezekiel when he was sitting in a foreign land under a foreign king, defeated in exile, wept as he watched the glory of the Lord leave Solomon's temple. And he wept as that temple and that glory, uh, the glory abandoned the temple so many years before. And it says, when they stood still, these stood still, this great holy chariot of the presence of God, and when they mounted up, these mounted up with them for the spirit of the living creatures. These, this ch holy chariot was in them. And these tragic, empty, heavy verse. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, the, the temple, and stood over the cherubim. And as uh, Ezekiel said, the glory of the Lord left Israel and generation after generation went by, and the glory did not return. Until that night, when shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord had returned, bringing good news of great joy. Verses 10 through 12, And the angel said to them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news, gospel of great joy that's for all people not just the powerful not just the privileged not just the educated not just the wealthy all people all sorts of people from shepherds to kings men and women slave and free all kinds of people for unto you is born this day in the city of david bethlehem a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Notice the first words from the mouth of the angel. Fear not. Why? Why is that so significant? Whenever the glory of the Lord is revealed to men and to women, to mankind, it is a frightful, terrifying experience. 
There are only a few times in Scripture where it talks about this, when a person encounters the glory of the Lord, even just a, a passing shadow. Moses was in reverent fear, and he hid his face. Manoah, the, the father of Samson, lamented, we have seen the glory of God and we're going to die. Isaiah, the mighty prophet, when he saw the very throne room of God, fell on his face and say, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinner, and I am from a people of unclean lips. We are sinners. The glory of God overwhelms sinful people. Imagine is the same way that the sun consumes a rocket that is sent towards the sun, the closer you get to the radiance and the glory of the sun, because it is pure energy and power, it will destroy anything that is not like it. It's the same thing with the glory of God. Once a little glimpse of God's glory comes to people that are sinful, it will consume them. And when people know this, this is a terrible, frightening place to be. Ocean Park, we will never realize the good news of fear not until we recognize the holiness of the God who sends an angel to say, fear not. There is nothing that you can do to endear yourself to a holy God. There is nowhere that you can hide from the consuming fire of his righteousness. The only thing you deserve as the New City Catechism tells us, is to be cast out of the favorable, holy presence of God into hell to be justly and grievously punished forever. But when the angel of the Lord comes and the glory of the Lord is, uh, appears and the words are not, I am coming to destroy you, but fear not. It changes how we hear these words. We deserve condemnation, but the holy God says, fear not. As Isaiah fell on his face, it was that very holy God that called Isaiah a sinful man and purified him and brought him into his presence. This is why the message of the angels is such good news. Verse 11, For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Three words that describe the good news of Christ, who He is. A Savior has come to deliver us from our enemies. That champion that was promised to Eve, whenever the Old Testament speaks and refers to a Savior, it almost uh, every time refers to God, who is rescuing His people from peril, whether it be the enemies that sought to destroy them or a disease that would kill them. The child born in Bethlehem would be a Savior, a Deliverer sent by God to rescue His people from what they could not rescue themselves from, their sin, their selfishness, their self-love, that the destruction that they, we have brought upon ourselves. A Savior, good news, fear not, a Savior is born. A Savior is Christ. 
Christ is another word for Messiah. It's the Greek word for the Old Testament word Messiah. The promised one. That long-awaited Savior that we look forward to. The, uh, this Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one, is what Genesis 49, the, the line of Judah, who would, all the nations would, he would reign. The, uh, Deuteronomy 18, he is the prophet that will come and speak as Moses has come. He is Joshua's captain of the Lord of hosts. He is in the book of Samuel, the son of David. He is Isaiah, the branch that will come out from the root of Jesse. In Micah, he is the son of righteousness coming with healing in his wings. The long-awaited anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior that the generations have been looking for, the very one that the angels strain their necks to see what God is doing, that deliverer, that Savior has been born in Bethlehem. And nobody knew but a handful of ragtag shepherds and an anonymous man and woman. A Savior who is Christ. We see the Lord. The promised one is not simply a prophet. He is not simply a priest. He's not a king. He's not a ruler. He's not a warlord who has risen up in power and strength as the judges of old. But it is God Himself, Emmanuel, who is dwelling in the midst of His people. The child born in Bethlehem was an ordinary child to everyone born of an ordinary faithful woman and an ordinary faithful man in an ordinary town at an ordinary time. But that child was no ordinary child. For the child that lay in the manger was God himself. As Crosby asked me, I think on the way to church, what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. The silence is over. The glory that left the temple has come back, not in a way that we expected with power and pomp and privilege, but humility being held in the arms of creation. This child born in Bethlehem is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The child in the manger has come to deliver his people from sin's oppression, establish his kingdom, and dwell with his people. And this is why the angels sang the good news. God is bringing salvation, not judgment, of great joy. We can dance. I know we're Baptists, but some of us can dance. Maybe Gil. I think Gil could dance pretty good. He grew up Pentecostal. I think that's a good thing for him. We dance for joy that the shackles of sin that held us in bondage have been freed. All people. Not just the educated, not just the power, not just the influential, not just the the ones that have been born of power and prestige. It's not reserved for privilege and power, but for the lonely and for the downcast, the forgotten, the overlooked, the marginalized, the ordinary. People like you and like me. Ordinary. Dirty shepherds, anonymous virgins, and barren women. Ordinary people. Verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among whom he is pleased. The praise that inhabits heaven 
24-7, all time, in a glimpse in that moment in Bethlehem, that praise and that rejoicing fell over and spilled over into the fields of Bethlehem that night with the angels' songs of praise. And it sounded, though our medley was great this morning, the glories of heaven, that is just a little brief foretaste of the glory that is to come when the angels of God, when all the faithful who have trusted the promises of God from the beginning until the end join together to sing the praises of the Savior who is Christ the Lord, the Savior who is able to reconcile and bring peace between God and man and between man and his neighbors, a Savior who is able to restore relationships between men and women, father and sons, mothers and daughters, a, a Savior who is able to harmonize governments and ethnicities and nations and people, but the warning of the words of the angels is the peace and praise of God is not a universal thing. It's not tasted by all mankind, though it's offered to all mankind. It will only be tasted and enjoyed and savored for eternity for those who put their faith in the promises of God as expressed in this child, who Christ was, Christ the Savior is, uh, the, uh, who is Lord. And what he has done, love the Lord with perfect righteousness and loved his neighbor with perfect righteousness and laid down his life. He received our guilt, our sin, our shame, and it was crushed on the cross, the punishment and death we deserve. And he gives us his perfect righteousness. So now that when we stand before the father, he no longer sees my sin, my guilt, my shame, but he sees Jesus because we have been united to Christ by faith alone. It's not, brothers and sisters, the gospel is not what we do. Though what we do is very important, how we live in response. It's not what we do, but what Christ has done. The promise of the gospel says, when the Father looked on the Son, he didn't see Jesus' sin, he saw mine. And when I stand before my Maker, the Almighty Judge, he will not see my lack of righteousness, but he will see Jesus's righteousness. And when I am asked, why can I go into heaven? And all I say is I'm with Jesus. I belong to Jesus and I trust his promises that he did, was born to die, to live a righteous life, to reveal the kingdom, to do miracles and healing, but he came to pay the ransom for my sin. And that changes how we live. The shepherds, when they heard this good news, they went and proclaimed and told all of their friends and neighbors, and most people were in awe of what these shepherds said. They didn't know what to think. That this child who cried like a baby, who ate like a baby, who fussed like a baby, was, had a profound sign, uh, uh, significance for this ordinary child was the Savior who is Christ the Lord. In the midst of an ordinary night in Bethlehem, an ordinary young woman gave birth to a child that the world failed to notice. And most honestly, the world continues to fail to notice. Blinded by secularism, blinded by consumerism, blinded by sentimentality, 
bonded by religious folk stories and their own self-righteousness and their own pride. We fail to see the significance of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We're trying to earn our way to heaven or ignore the fact that we have a debt when the offer of peace with God through Christ, who He is, fully God and fully man, and what He has done, laid down His life for those who have put their faith in Him. That promise of God is working through ordinary people. The promise that of God are accomplished in the midst of the ordinary. Ocean Park, despite what your mama told you when you were a little boy and a little girl, we're all ordinary people. Probably in uh, the, we are, don't go, don't sing yet. In the midst of 7 billion people in the world, we are a handful of people this morning. In 100 years, most of us, nobody will remember our name, and if they know our name, they will know little about us. I know, it's kind of depressing. Merry Christmas, everyone. We have ordinary paths and ordinary lives, but we have been given the pleasure and the privilege of doing something in our ordinary lives that is profound, making Christ known. In the midst of the ordinary, here are two points of application. Be faithful. Be faithful in your ordinary lives. Like, little, like Mary and Joseph in the little town of Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, God used ordinary people to accomplish the profound. He's still doing that today. Don't think that because your name is not in lights that your life is not valuable. Be faithful wherever the Lord has brought you in your ordinary life. Redeem your ordinary life for the glory of God. Whether it's working, playing, resting, reading, researching, eating, traveling, selling, celebration, learning, teaching, performing, creating, building, thinking, interactive, or watching. Your worth is not in who you are and what you do, but whom you belong to. The value of your life will not be measured by your accomplishments, by what you do or what you perform. Your, the measure of your life will be where you're faithful to Christ to fulfill the great commission, to make his name known to the nations. Or do we hoard the good news of great joy, which is for all people? We hoard it among ourselves as a secret. Those of us who are united to Christ by faith belong to God. Therefore, be faithful to magnify the one who has redeemed us, that Savior who has delivered us, who is Christ the Lord. Make him known in the midst of your ordinary lives. Not only are we called to be faithful in the ordinary, but we're called to magnify the profound. Nicholas Zinzendorf said these simple words, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Don't waste your ordinary life. Don't keep looking for what tomorrow holds and, what you, and waste the beautiful, ordinary blessings of your life today. Use every today to make much of the King of eternity, Jesus Christ. 
from the classroom to the boardroom, to Main Street to Wall Street, from kindergarten to retirement, from the cradle to the grave, from breakfast to lunch to dinner. Magnify the only name that brings hope and that brings peace and that brings joy and that brings love between God and man and between man and his neighbor, Jesus Christ, the good news of great joy. He is able to take our ordinary lives and make the profoundly extraordinary significance of Jesus Christ, fulfillment of the promises of God and redeeming us from our sin. Don't waste our ordinary lives making the extraordinary promises of God known. In a time when we can be so distracted by sentimentality and consumerism and selfishness and what we want and what we have to get and the duties and the food and the gifts, we can forget the greatest gift, the greatest joy, the greatest extraordinary promises of God that he is working in the midst of our lives to perform, the the promises of God that he is unfolding in the midst of Uh, of the ordinary.